following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. For this morning, we're carrying on our series in the book of Acts. So if you haven't been part of this so far, that's okay. We're working our way through this book of the Bible that uh, tells the story of the first three decades after the life of Jesus. These three decades that changed the world around the middle of the first century, working through the stories of the early church, the stories of the early mission of God as it got going in the world. This morning we are going to be in Acts chapter 17. So if you've brought a Bible, you can find your way there in your Bible. Uh, After Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you've got Acts Uh, You've got it on your device, open it up, the words will be on the screen. And this morning, we have the Smith family. It's going to be a shared reading this morning. I think three of the Smiths are going to come and read this passage for us. So up you come, team, and uh, you can take us through through this passage. I'll organize some microphones for you here. Acts 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything rather he gives him, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else for from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands god did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poet as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear more. We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. All right, thanks, Nate and Trent and Carla. That was awesome. Okay, now I know at the moment that we can't really travel internationally because of COVID and everything else, but this morning we're going to go on a little trip in our mind's eye, okay? We're going to go to this city here. That was your cue, Detlef. <laughs> this city here. There it is. Oh, we're impeccable timing here. Where's that? Athens. Yes, Athens. Anyone been to Athens? Yeah, a few hands. Yeah, I've never been, never been there. I'd like to go one day. In fact, what I'd love to do is a, a tour of some of the main spots that Paul went to on his journeys. You know, go through a bit of Turkey and Greece and Italy. So if anyone wants to join me on that tour after COVID, then let's do it. But here, we're going to go to Athens this morning, amazing city, uh, incredible history uh, in Athens, you know, the, the, the cradle of democracy, the home of Western civilization, really, and the heart of the Greek empire, which was one of the most dominant empires, the most impressive empires that's ever existed. And you can go to Athens and see today still these ruins of incredible ancient buildings like the Parthenon, uh, these buildings that would have been standing there in Paul's day. So, you know, you can picture Paul coming into a city like this and he would have walked around and he would have seen the pillars of the Parthenon. He would have seen the Acropolis and, and the amphitheater and these things. These, would have, these buildings would have been there in all their glory as, as Paul walked the streets of Athens. So an incredible sense of history that the city holds. Even back in Paul's day, even in the first century, this was an impressive city. This was a major city in the ancient world. It had an incredible heritage. This was the home of the great Greek philosophers, Plato, and Socrates, you know, these, I mean, these, these are just names for us, names of history, right? But, but for, for Athenians, these were rock stars. These were, this was like, you know, us talking about Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, the iconic figures in national history. That's what it was like to mention Plato in Athens. These were the great people of the past who had been foundational for this city. Athens considered itself to be the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was this place people from all over the world would come to learn philosophy in Athens. It was the home of philosophy. That was the big deal. You would come there, you would learn the latest philosophies, or you'd learn one of the mystery religions, and you'd learn Plato, and you'd learn Aristotle and Socrates and these ideas, and you would become a philosopher. Anyone who wanted to be in philosophy, this was the place that you went. In fact, Luke tells us in this passage that all the Athenians did all day was sit around talking about the latest ideas. You know, this was just, it was just the air that you breathed, philosophy. You know, you go to the pub at night with your mates. You don't sit around talking about the latest MP that's resigned. You sit around talking about the latest philosophy that's come through town. This is just how it is. It's what you talked about. It's just the stuff. It was just the water cooler conversations that you would have with people. So this is the city that Paul, sometime in the middle of the first century, Paul arrives in Athens. And he's toured his way around a whole lot of cities, but this is quite unique. For him, this is, this is a, a big deal. And he gets to Athens, and I think he realizes he's going to need a different approach in this kind of city. Some of the strategies he's used in other cities are not going to work. And so he doesn't only preach in the Jewish synagogue, which is what he would do elsewhere. He did do that, but in addition to that, as he enters into Athens, he goes to the marketplace. 
And this was like the public place where ideas would be discussed. It's not just for buying and selling, but this was the place where people would come and they would debate philosophy. And they would listen to the philosophers arguing with one another and you would kind of absorb and and understand and, and start to have some conversation about philosophy. And so Paul comes into the marketplace and he starts talking with some of the philosophers there, some of the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. And these were just two of the leading brands of theology and philosophy that were going on in the time. And so he gets into conversation with them. And he starts talking about Jesus. And he starts introducing these ideas about Jesus being raised from the dead. And this was stuff they'd never heard before. This was totally new teaching. And they didn't quite know what to do with what they were hearing from Paul. It didn't really fit into the categories that they had. It didn't seem to gel with the Greek kind of system of philosophy, the strange teaching about Jesus and this this idea that he'd been raised from the dead. It didn't work for them. They thought, well, you know, he's just babbling. He's just, you know, he's off on some other track. They didn't know what to do with him. And so these philosophers invited Paul to explain his teaching before a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a group of very prominent citizens in Athens, and they were basically responsible for the introduction of new ideas into the city. So you you couldn't just go around teaching whatever you wanted in Athens. It wasn't a total free-for-all. There were these gatekeepers of philosophies, and they would decide what philosophies are acceptable to be brought into the city and to be debated and to be talked about. And they would, they would sit around talking about, you know, what, what are we going to allow in? And so they invite Paul to come into this prominent meeting of prominent citizens. They met on this hill, which is now the Acropolis. It was called Mars Hill. And you can go there today, I understand, and there's a plaque there, and you can see a text of this speech in Greek. But this text of the speech that Paul gave to the Areopagus. It's there today. So Paul comes into this meeting. He's never one to give up an opportunity. And he comes in and begins explaining the good news about Jesus. Now, this text that we have, the speech that we have from Paul, it's the longest recorded speech of Paul in the book of Acts. And it's a really significant one. I mean, this is an important moment in the story of Acts. it, It was certainly an important moment for Paul. It was an important moment in his whole missionary career, speaking here in front of a really significant group within a really significant city. And what you have in this passage, in this chapter, is an incredible example of connecting the gospel with culture. That's what Paul is doing. He's taking the gospel and he is connecting it into a particular culture. Paul never walked into a new place with some kind of pre-prepared speech in his back pocket. He never bowled in with just some kind of formulaic speech that he just said verbatim, regardless of who he was talking to. He would always contextualize. He would always take his message, and the heart of the gospel never changed. He would always talk about Jesus. He would always get to that. But the way that he communicated that, and the language he would use, and the stories, or the idioms, or the metaphor, or whatever, that would change depending on context. And he would shape the gospel to connect with the culture that he was speaking into so that it would make sense, so that it would be meaningful to those that he was talking to. And that's what he does here. So what we can learn from this is a wonderful example of connecting gospel and culture today. Obviously, our culture is different. First century Athens, it's a long way from 21st century Auckland. But as you listen to Paul, as you see him at work, you can 
discern a pattern here. You can discern some wisdom here that can help us in taking the gospel and taking our culture and translating. Translating the gospel in a way that makes sense to the culture but is still faithful to the gospel itself. That's not easy to do, but that's what Paul shows us how to do. So I want to draw from Paul's speech here. I want to draw three things that can help us and just help us in everyday conversations. It may not be standing up before a big group of people like Paul did, but just in everyday conversations as we engage with people around us who are not Christians, primarily secular Western thinkers, of how we can connect the gospel to our culture today. Things that we need to know and take on board if we're going to do that faithfully, okay? So here we go. First thing we need to do or think if we're going to connect gospel and culture, we need to simply know the culture and know the gospel. Simple as that. That's where we've got to start. That's where Paul started. Look at the introduction to his speech, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul had familiarized himself with the culture. He'd taken the time to walk around. Right? He walked around the marketplace. He'd seen all these idols, these idols of silver and bronze and stone, all these idols probably to various Greek gods, Zeus and Hades and Hermes and so on. And then he even saw an idol that had the inscription to an unknown God. And this was kind of like a way of hedging your bets. You know, just in case there's some other God that we haven't thought of, just in case there's some other deity that's going to be really offended if we don't worship it, we'd better make another idol and that's a catch-all for every other God just to keep all the other gods happy that we don't even know exist. So this idol to the unknown God. And Paul uses that idol to, to bridge to the God who has made himself known. In Jesus, and he, and he connects the two. But the only reason he can do that is because he is already familiar with the culture that he's speaking into. And it makes you wonder, like, what would Paul say if he was speaking to a bunch of Aucklanders today? You know, if he was standing in Aetia Square talking to a bunch of people, what would he say? People of Auckland. <laughs> what would, I see that in every way you are very secular, you know, maybe he might say, because we're not particularly religious anymore. But I wonder whether he might still start naming some of the cultural idols that we have today. Because even though we might not have idols sitting, you know, of bronze or silver or stone, our city is still full of idols, right? Our country is still full of idols. It's just you can't always see them, which can make them even more deadly. Your idol could be the money in your bank account. Your idol could be the phone in your pocket. Your idol could be your partner. Your idol could be the car in the car park. You know, we have all sorts of idols today. They're just different kinds of idols than they were in the first century. But I think Paul would connect the dots because we are just as religious in a sense, aren't we? We are created to worship. We are human beings. Human beings are hardwired to worship something. Our hearts will find something to worship. And if that something is not the one true God, then by definition, it's an idol. That's what idolatry is. So we need to be aware of idols, not just to guard our own hearts, but because this is where people live. This is the reality that people have. If we're going to speak into our culture, we need to be aware of the idols that exist in our culture. How easily can you name some of the dominant idols of New Zealand culture today? 
Here's something to think about in your life groups or over lunch today. How easily can you name some of the idols that are prevalent in New Zealand culture? Quick list that I came up with. Money, power, sex. Those are kind of the big three, aren't they? And generally, typically, in most cultures. Celebrity, sports and fitness, social media, diet, your phone or device, your career, alcohol, image, fashion, partner. Now, none of those are bad things, right? So don't think like, oh, are you saying like we shouldn't play sports anymore because that's an idol? No, this is the whole thing with idols today. Idols typically are good things that become God things. That's the problem with them. They they are good gifts. These are great things. They're part of life. The problem is we take them and we turn them into objects of worship. We take them and we make them our heart's greatest desire. We make them the center of our lives. We make them an object that we're drawn to more than anything else. We place them above everything else in our life. We have almost an addictive relationship with them. That's what makes them idols. That's the problem. Now, we need to be able to understand our culture well enough to know the idols of contemporary culture because then we start to see what drives people. And we start to see the values that people live by We start to see what's fueling their life. We start to see why and how they're making decisions. And we have a starting point then to connect with them in order to begin moving them, hopefully, Lord willing, from those idols towards the one true living God who can do what no idol can do, right? Provide real purpose, provide real meaning, provide real identity. That's what we hope all of our idols will do. That's what we hope money, sex, and power will do. Provide identity, purpose, and meaning. Our role as Christians is ultimately to point people away from that and say there's only one place where real identity, real purpose, real meaning, ultimately real fulfillment in life can be found because as Augustine said, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. So if we're going to engage with culture, we need to know our culture. And secondly, we need to know the gospel. And I won't linger on this today because we talk about this a lot, but we need to know our story. We need to know this book. We need to know the gospel story. We need to know the Jesus story. If someone asked you, what is the significance of Jesus? Could you give them a succinct answer without going down 10 rabbit trails, without quoting 50 verses of scripture, without taking half an hour? Could you succinctly answer that question? What is the significance of Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die? How is Christianity different to every other religion? Why should we trust the Bible? If one of those questions just happened to be fired across your bow, could you answer it? And could you do a reasonable job of clearly and concisely addressing that question? We need to be prepared. We need to be familiar enough with the gospel story and have some questions and some answers in our minds that we're ready to engage. The Bible says always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And this is part of it. Know the gospel, know the culture. Now, that, in a sense, is just the easy part. That's, that's just the first step. We've got to know these two realities, our culture and the gospel. That's, that's the first step. But here's the challenge then, is then learning to translate from the gospel to the culture and from the culture to the gospel. Now, let me say two things about this, and I want to unpack this a little bit more. The first is we need to find connections between the gospel and the culture. Now look at what Paul does here. This is just masterful. One of the most fascinating verses, I think, in, certainly in this speech, if not in the whole New Testament, verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Now, what's Paul doing here? Well, in that one verse, he is quoting from two other sources. And guess what? They're not in the Bible, right? He's not like quoting from Isaiah or Ezekiel. He's quoting from Greek philosophers. He's quoting from Greek poets. And you can go and track down these quotes and they really were spoken and they really were said. The first one is from a guy called Epimenides. And he, he wrote that or he spoke that first quote, for in him we live and move and have our being. That came from him. The second uh, one there, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That came from Aratus, Greek poet, lived in the third century. So why does Paul quote from these two people? Because he is connecting with his audience. Because he's connecting with who he's talking to. If he'd just quoted from Isaiah, it would have been meaningless to the Athenians. But they knew Epimenides. And they knew Aratus, and these guys had influence, and they respected these great Greek philosophers of the past. And so Paul knows, I know how to connect with this audience. I will quote from their own poets. I will quote from their own philosophers and use that in the service of his argument. Now, there's a principle, I think, underneath what Paul is doing here that's important for us to grasp, and it's this. All truth is God's truth. Okay, wherever it is found, all truth is God's truth. You see, these guys were not Christians, these two Greek philosophers. These were not followers of Jesus. These were not followers of God. These were not people who knew anything about the Bible. They were pagan philosophers who worshiped pagan gods. They followed the Greek gods. In fact, let me just show you the, the broader context of that quote by Aratus. Let me just show you the, the, the fuller bit around that. I'll read it for you. I think we've got it on screen. Uh, he wrote, all the streets and all the marketplaces of humanity are full of Zeus. Also full of him are the seas and the harbors. And everywhere we all have need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring. Now, who's he talking about? Zeus. He's not talking about God. He's not talking about Jesus. So what on earth is Paul doing quoting from this guy? Quoting from this pagan Greek philosopher who's basically writing a psalm to Zeus and Paul takes it, plucks it, and put it into his, into his speech and quotes it. And he quotes it approvingly. He doesn't quote it to disagree with it. He quotes it to approve of it. See, Paul knew all truth is God's truth. So Paul could look at that statement that's underlined, and he could say that is true. Now, it's not true in the way that Aratus meant it. It's not true of Zeus. But it is true. It is true of the one true living God. So Paul can take it and say, thank you very much, I'll use it. I will second that statement to the service of the gospel and I will use it in my exposition of the gospel. All truth is God's truth. So what that tells us is that there is truth that can be found outside of the Christian religion. Now I know that's controversial, right? And that might make some of you a little bit worried. You say, Does that, are you saying that all religions are true? No, I'm saying that there is truth in all religions. That's a different thing. See, did Paul believe that Greek mythology was true? No. Was he a worshipper of Zeus? Of course not. But did he believe that there was truth in what truth there are? He must have because he quotes it and he quotes it approvingly. There is truth. There are true statements that can be found outside of the Christian religion. And we can affirm the truth in another belief system without buying into the whole thing. Is that right? You can affirm that there are truths in another worldview, in another religion, in another belief system, without buying into the whole system. 
And we can take those truths and we can, in fact, redirect them towards the gospel and towards real truth, which is found in God. Now, I know that's a bit to get your head around, but what it means is this. Muhammad said things that are true, some things that are true. Not everything, but some things. Buddha said things that are true. Not everything, but some things. Even Richard Dawkins said some things, believe it or not, that are true. There is truth out there, and there's truth in surprising places sometimes. Outside of the gospel itself, there are still true statements that can be made, often around the periphery of these other beliefs and worldviews, and we can affirm that. And we can take those statements, and we can use them as bridges between the gospel and our culture. Now, let me give you a contemporary example of this. Some of you are not at all convinced, I can tell. Let me keep working on you here. Um, some of you be fans of the band Imagine Dragons. Our boy Josh has been a bit of a fan of Imagine Dragons. Not a Christian band at all, by any stretch. But they write some songs that have got some surprisingly spiritual lyrics. Let me read you some. There's a song they wrote called Demons. No matter what we breed, we are still made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come. When you feel my heat, look into my eyes. It's where my demons hide. It's where my demons hide. Don't get too close. It's dark inside. It's where my demons hide. Now, it's not a Christian song, right? I'm not claiming it's a Christian song. It's not a Christian band. I don't know who they're talking about. I don't know who that song's written to. In a sense, it doesn't matter. I can still look at those lyrics and say, there is something true about that. That says something true about our humanity, that we are full of greed, that we are often about just building our own kingdom. I think there's something true in that about how a lot of people feel about God. Don't get too close. We don't want him to see the darkness in our own heart. We feel afraid. We feel ashamed. I don't want God to shine his light into my own heart because I'm ashamed of my own darkness. I think there's something true there. Now, that's not explaining the whole gospel. I think it's simply affirming that there can be truth. There can be statements that reflect something of what we believe. And I can imagine that if Paul was standing today speaking to a bunch of Aucklanders, he may well say, as some of your own poets have said, no matter what we breed, we are still made of greed. Because that reflects something about the depravity of the human heart. But I've come to tell you about the, the one true God who reaches into our darkness that we can allow close and we don't need to fear him because he exposes all of our sin and our lies, but he cleanses us, renews us and draws us to himself. I could just imagine Paul quoting Imagine Dragons if he was here. Now, I could be wrong. I might, I might get to heaven and meet Paul and he's like, what on earth did you say that for? There's no, there's no way I'd ever quote that band, you know. So, all right, I could be wrong, but I could imagine him quoting secular people, secular lyrics of secular songs or movies or whatever it is, not just for the sake of it, okay, don't hear me saying that, not just to be shocking or provocative, but for the purpose of connecting gospel and culture. What you're doing is working from the world to the word, not from the word to the world, because it's more meaningful to people to meet them where they're at. So, I mean, here's a challenge. Just this week, think about some connections that you can see. Become like an amateur sociologist and look around you and think about pop culture and think what is there that could be a connection between culture 
and gospel. Because who knows that you won't be in a conversation with someone and have an opportunity to say, actually, there's a song I heard on the radio. Not a Christian song at all, but it, it says something that kind of resonates with my faith. It says something that kind of reflects something about what I believe and what I believe is true about human beings and the world. And, and maybe that's a starting point for you. Rather than, can I please tell you about Jesus? It's a starting point for you to talk about a song or a movie. Now, we need to be sensible about this. I'm not talking about delving into stuff that's inappropriate. I'm not talking about being provocative for the sake of it. I'm, not, I'm certainly not talking about being carried away by our culture. We've got to be careful of that, to be overly influenced by it. I'm simply talking about being discerning and looking for intersection points between gospel and culture, because that's what Paul is doing here. And if that's what he's doing, it gives us a great model for engaging gospel and culture today. All right? You can be pondering that while I'm talking about the next point. Now, the, the final point I want to mention is going to sound like almost the opposite of what I've just said. We need also to be prepared to challenge the culture with the gospel. Okay? Some of you are nodding your heads. You're like, I, I was waiting for you to get to this. All right? Enough about, enough about connecting. Now let's talk about challenging. Well, let, let's look at what Paul does here in verse 31. And this is his big finish. Okay, this is just before he drops the mic and walks off stage. This is how he finishes. For he has set a day when he will by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's interesting that the final point Paul finishes on is the resurrection. And that would have been the hardest thing for his audience to swallow. That would have been the most jarring statement for them because the resurrection was ridiculous. So for all the work that Paul does in connecting with his culture, he then finally gets to the end and makes this statement that just about loses his audience because he says, let me tell you about the resurrection. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about this man whom God has raised from the dead and set as the one that he's appointed to judge all things. The, the idea of the resurrection was ridiculous to the Greeks. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but the idea that God would raise a man from the dead, that, that God would meddle himself in, in humanity and raise a body like that. I mean, the Greeks believed the body was basically evil. Our material bodies, material world, it was basically evil. God doesn't want anything to do with that. Why on earth would he resurrect somebody? It didn't make sense. And yet Paul doesn't shy away from it, does he? He could have. He could have just stuck with, you know, the philosophers that they loved and worked in that sort of space. But in the end, he gets to Jesus. In the end, he gets to the resurrection. And even though it's uncomfortable, and even though he is disparaged because of it, he states plainly and straightforwardly the claims of the Christian faith, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to be all about connecting the gospel and culture, but we also need to realize that fundamentally, the gospel that we hold to is a challenge to our culture. It doesn't just connect to it. It challenges and it disrupts the worldviews that other people hold. And that's the nature of truth. That's the nature of the gospel. I, it's, I, I find it a little bit concerning today that I think in, among some Christians, maybe some churches, there's this desire to make Christianity as cool as it can possibly be. Like as if that's our whole mission. If we can just make Christianity cool again, you know, like if we can just use really trendy language and, you know, just have the, the coolest church experience for people. If we can just have the trendiest pastor, you know, you've, we've already lost that battle, haven't we? 
You know, if we can just try to, you know, use edgy language and have tattoos and dress all hipster, or I don't even know if those things are cool. It just shows how uncool I am. But, you know, if we, whatever we need to do so that if we make the gospel cool again, people will flock to it. People will just come flooding back to church. And I think we've forgotten that at the heart of our faith are these scandalous events that Jesus has died and Jesus has risen again. And Paul himself says that is always going to be a stumbling block. That is always going to be somewhat offensive to any culture at any time. And that is unavoidable. We can dress it up however we like. and We can put particular language around it. And yes, we want to try and be meaningful with that. But fundamentally, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is absolute foolishness. But that doesn't mean we shy away from it. There is power in the gospel and it means we are called to lovingly and graciously state the claims of the Christian faith and leave people's responses to God. Can leave the outcomes with Him, can leave the reactions to Him, but we dare not shy away from those truths that are, that are most central just out of some desire to be culturally relevant. The gospel is bigger than that. God is more powerful than that. And we need to allow the gospel to challenge, gently challenge the worldviews that other people hold. Let me quote from the missiologist Leslie Newbegin. He said, from the point of view of our contemporary culture, the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead is irrational. It cannot be accommodated into the existing plausibility structure. It has never at any time been possible to fit the resurrection of Jesus into any worldview except a worldview of which it is the basis. In other words, what he's saying is, as we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's not something that we're hoping people will just slot into their already preconceived ideas about life. Right? We're not offering this so that people will just absorb it into their own other belief system, even though that's often what people want to do. Right? I mean, we live in the age of DIY spirituality. I'll take a bit of this, a bit of that, construct my own kind of mantra for life. But we offer the gospel and we talk about the resurrection as something that fundamentally challenges every worldview, every culture, every belief system, and is the basis of an entirely new worldview. In fact, new creation, because that's what happened when Jesus raised from the dead. We don't need to be ashamed of that. We can simply state that. We don't, I mean, I believe there are good reasons to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe that's a reasonable position to hold based on the evidence. But we don't need to argue for it. We don't need to try and drag people kicking and screaming into believing it. We can simply and straightforwardly and lovingly explain our faith and leave God to work in the hearts of people as he wants to. And that means sometimes the results may not be great. I mean, you look at Paul in Athens. It was a very mixed reception, wasn't it, that he got? I mean, some people believed. Clearly, there were a few people. But it was precisely the point he started talking about the resurrection that people started to snigger and sneer and accuse him of things. And as Paul walked away from Athens, there is no evidence that he left behind him a church. There's no book in our New Testament called First Athenians. There is no reference in any of Paul's letters to Christians in Athens or a church in Athens. Now, there may well have been one, but it may equally be that what you've got in Acts 18, uh, 17 is an example of failure in ministry on Paul's part. And I think he was okay with that. I mean, I think it broke his heart. 
that people were not more receptive to the gospel. But Paul wasn't called to be successful. He wasn't called to be effective. He was called to be faithful. And maybe in Athens that meant walking away without having had a great reception. But he knew he'd been faithful to his calling. He did all he could to connect that gospel to the Athenian people. But at the end of the day, he didn't shy away from talking about Jesus. Didn't shy away from talking about the resurrection. That's a wonderful model for us to follow. Sometimes the reception we get is going to be mixed, isn't it? Or it may be just downright negative. Sometimes we're going to start talking about these things. Jesus. Start talking about the death of Jesus. Start talking about the resurrection of Jesus with people. I mean, that's the point at which the conversation might get a little bit awkward. That's the point at which someone is going to need to go and get another drink. You know, it's just people, people just find it strange. But you can think back to Paul in Athens and take some courage, can't you? You can think of Paul's statement in Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for all who believe. We're just called to share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can leave God with the rest. So here we are, 21st century Auckland. It's a long, long way from Athens. It's a long way from Athens in the first century, isn't it? Huge cultural gap, huge time gap, huge geography gap. But my hope is that as a church and as individuals in a whole lot of different conversations, we could start to do a little bit of what Paul does. And maybe this week we could do a bit of that. Not saying what Paul said, but doing what Paul does. Can you see the difference? He's specifically talking into a particular culture. But can you see the wisdom in what he's doing here and somehow use that in your own conversations to translate gospel and culture? It means that you need to know the culture, to be familiar with the worldview of people in your world. It means you need to know the gospel, to know the story. It means you need to be able to find those connections, look for those connections between the gospel and the culture and use those intersection points to start conversations. And it means that we need to be willing to graciously and lovingly let the gospel challenge the worldview of our culture when the opportunity arises. I pray that we'd be bold enough, I pray that we'd be gracious enough to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of our world, the darkness of our culture, knowing that as we do, Jesus is with us. He's not left us on our own with this. He's with us. He's for us. He's working through us to redeem and mend and heal a broken world. Let's pray. Well, God, we, we think of people in our own lives that don't know you. We think of family members. We think of friends. We think of colleagues classmates and God our heart is is for them to come to know you the God that we love the God that we serve and God we want to be able to know your story to know you to know our culture well enough to connect with those in our world but ultimately God we also know that your word says there is a veil over the eyes of unbelievers and until your Holy Spirit works eyes will never be opened until your Holy Spirit works in the hearts of people, hearts will never be changed. And so we just want to lift up. Lord, just now in this moment, as minds, as our faces and names come to our minds, we just lift up people that we know in our world and our culture who don't know you, and we want to pray for your working in their life. We want to be faithful. We want to take on board everything Paul did, and we want to seek to be, to be able to take these steps and to know what's going on. But God, ultimately, we long for you to move by the power of your Holy Spirit.
And when we next have the opportunity, Lord, to speak a word, to speak up rather than shrink back, I pray that, Jesus, you would give us the boldness and the courage in that moment to step forward rather than back, to think of Paul all the way back in Athens and the burden that he carried and the daunting task that he faced and the willingness he had even to be ridiculed if that's what it came to. And God, help us to take some courage and comfort from that and in the power of your Holy Spirit, speak a word of truth into that conversation, into that life that's sitting in front of us. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you go before us in all of these things. And we thank you that it is really all about you and your grace. And so we are grateful to you, God, and pray for your power in our lives as we take your word from here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.